Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Thanks everyone so much for joining us today. My name is Justin Fighton. I'm a senior attorney at Kynes Boston office and I'm with my colleague, Timothy Picopoulos. Um, so just a quick background of KIND, if you're not familiar. So we are a nationwide nonprofit legal service provider providing legal and social service support for unaccompanied immigrant and refugee children. And KIND's mission is to ensure that no child appear in immigration court alone. Okay, so this is our training agenda for today. Uh, we're going to be briefly reviewing how a child ends up in immigration court proceedings. And then we're going to review the SIG process, the Special Immigrant Juvenile stat Status Process and eligibility requirements. Uh, this training is going to be focused on the first stage of that process, which begins in state court. Uh, we're going to discuss the various types of filings that we utilize in state court. Uh, we're going to go over the common components of these filings. Uh, we're going to dive into then the service of process uh, portion of that type of filing. And then we're going to discuss what happens at hearing. Okay, so immigration removal proceedings. All of the children we represent at KIND are in immigration removal proceedings. At least they start out that way. Um, and, you know, that's when the government essentially is seeking to remove the child from the United States. A child is here without lawful status, and the, the government is seeking to, to take that child and remove them back to their native country. Uh, this diagram illustrates how that occurs. It's a very basic summary. You could have a whole training or series of trainings just on what this process looks like in, in each individual step. Um, so first, the child is attained by Customs and Border Protection, also known as uh, CBP, uh, and, and they're detained at the border, and then the child is processed and taken to a shelter run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, also known as ORR, and then at some point after, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, uh, serves the child with a charging document known as a Notice to Appear, also referred to as an NTA. Um, that notice to appear contains all of the allegations against the child. It has all of the charges of removability. Um, and that NTA could be served through ORR or could be served after the child has been released to a parent or guardian or sponsor. Um, now, once the NTA is filed with the immigration court, removal proceedings commence. Uh, the court will then schedule a preliminary hearing where the child will plead to the charges and any um, and plead to any relief from removal, or if there's a defect on the NTA that's discovered, the child could seek to have that um, those proceedings terminated on it for the purposes of improper service. And then, uh, you know, if the child were to uh, plead to the charges and, and plead to any relief, relief from removal, uh, the two most common types are SIG and asylum. So Sylvia's story, this is a very typical example of one of the cases that we see in our office uh, of a child in removal proceedings. Sylvia's left Guatemala for the United States when she was 15 years old. Her mother died when she was very young. Her father had a drinking problem and beat her frequently. Uh, when she crossed the border, she was caught by border patrol. 
because she was a minor, she was detained and placed in the, under the custody of the Officer Refugee Resettlement. Is there anything that can be done to prevent her removal back to the dangerous situation she faced in Guatemala? So we're gonna return back to Sylvia's story, but let's first take a look at the eligibility criteria for special immigrant juvenile status. The first of which is that the child must be present in the United States. Uh, the second is that the child must be unmarried. The third is that the child must be under the age of 21 on the date of filing of the SIG petition with USCIS, US, US Citizenship and Immigration Services. Uh, then the child must be under the jurisdiction of a state court uh, with the authority to make dependency, custody, and, and care decisions regarding a child. And an actual custodial or dependency determination has to be rendered. Um, next, the state court has to find that reunification with one or both parents is not viable due to a parental uh, abuse, abandonment, or neglect, or a similar basis there too, such as the death of a parent. And when we say the word viable, uh, it means not good for the child. It means, you know, it, it's, it wouldn't result in a successful parent-child relationship. It does not mean that it's not possible for the child to reunite. So we're not talking about termination of parental right proceedings here. This is a, a lower bar. Uh, finally, uh, you have to show that it's uh, not in the child's best interest to return to his or her native country. So we can return back to Sylvia's story. And if we apply those elements, well, she's present in the United States. Uh, she's unmarried. Her mother is deceased. Her father was uh, physically abusive. He abuses alcohol in front of her. He's presumably in Guatemala. And this would likely result in a guardianship pe petition uh, being filed in the probate and family court. And the child could seek findings with that guardianship petition. And those findings would be based on the parental abuse, abandonment, and death of a parent that she suffered. And she would also show that it's not in her best interest to return back to her native country because it wasn't a safe situation for her to return to or abusive fathers there. Uh, perhaps there's no one else there to care for her. Uh, perhaps she, you know, there could be other factors at play that aren't discussed in this fact pattern, like you know, access to school or uh, medical care, et cetera. And then we contrast that with the positive factors that she's thriving in the United States. Um, you know, she's back in school or she's in school. Maybe she's getting mental health counseling at this point. Uh, she lives in a safe environment, so important, uh, with an adequate caretaker, her guardian. So this is what the SID process looks like, this graphic. Um, and we can see here on the top, the three phases, right? And each phase corresponds to each sort of third of the case that's done. And the blue phase on top, we call it phase one. Um, this is, takes place in state court. And locally, this would be either the Massachusetts Probate and Family Court or one of the Massachusetts Juvenile Courts. And we're gonna be focused primarily on this phase today. And we're gonna be focused primarily within the context of the Probate and Family Court because that's where most of our cases end up. Now, you might be wondering like, why are we in state court for this process? This is a federal immigration relief that, that the child's gonna be seeking. Well, we're in state court because, you know, when the federal law was first created, uh, it was decided that these are, you know, decisions are being made regarding uh, um, the child's best interest, their custody, child welfare, dependency, child abuse, abandonment, neglect, 
all of these subjects classically fall within the purview of state family courts. So the federal government, when the, when the statute was first created, decided that those decisions are best left with the states. And then what would happen is once the state renders a decision on that blue phase, they could proceed then to the federal component of the actual granting of an immigration status. So it's a hybrid process. It's a hybrid process and procedure, federal law and procedure and state law and procedure. Now, you can't just go to the state court. You can't just go to the private and family court and say, hey, I had this child, I, we need these findings. Uh, there's a process that has to take place. And that process uh, starts with the filing of a complaint or a petition with the state court. And that complaint or petition has to seek a custodial or dependency determination. That's crucial. And then with that filing, special findings are requested regarding the, um, the other pieces of the SIG elements. And that's usually done by motion. And that covers the abuse, abandonment, neglect, and non-viability determination that I mentioned earlier, and also the best interest determination. And then after obtaining a judgment at the final hearing, uh, it, it will be you know, a judgment of custody or a guardianship decree. Um, you know, the judge will also issue these special findings, and you can take those findings and judgment and then file it with USCIS. And that's when we proceed to the orange phase, phase two. Um, and this essentially, it's, it's the completion of some forms, some biographic forms, you're checking off some boxes, and then you're attaching the court orders to those forms, and then you're sending them off to USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and a decision hopefully comes back within six months. Um, if approved, the child is a special immigrant juvenile. Uh, the child's able to obtain a work card. The child might be able to you know, terminate their immigration removal proceedings. It uh, doesn't mean that they're done, but it means that they're, it's a significant step in protecting the child from having to return back to his or her native country. So after approval, we can then proceed to phase three, which is seen there on the bottom part of the screen. It's an olive green. Um, and this is where you're, you're seeking to, to prepare the uh, child's adjustment of status application, the green card application. And this will eventually be submitted to either the immigration court if you haven't terminated proceedings, or it will be submitted to USCIS, depending on the posture of the case. And assuming all goes well, the child will obtain lawful permanent residence, which is the right to live and, and work and, and, and reside in the United States um, without the fear of removal. Uh, it's really important. And then the child's able to pursue um, uh, citizenship down the road. And all of this, right, that, that great benefit that comes at the end of phase three, all of it rests on what happened in phase one. And this is the most time-consuming phase, that blue phase. Um, and it involves, and the reason why it's so time-consuming is because you're, you're meeting with the client for the first time, you're building rapport, you're drafting an affidavit, you're preparing for court, you're, you're presenting these this information to a court. So let's go to the next slide. Okay, so essentially state court, we have two primary goals. Uh, we are, we're in state court to obtain a custodial or dependency determination. And then we're also there to obtain this predicate order with the factual and legal determinations necessary for SIG classification. And both of those goals will result in documents that you're able to file with USCIS. So getting into the probate and family court, obtaining custody or dependency, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you, you have to have a suitable filing to get these cases into court. You can't just go in there with, with a, a filing that doesn't request either custody or dependency. 
And the configurations, you know, it depends on what the familial situation is. And Justin's going to talk about that uh, in just a few minutes. But, you know, essentially, uh, you know, these are the these are the most common forms that we see. Uh, guardianship of a minor, uh, paternity or custody for, for children who came from uh, unwed parents, divorce or separate support for children of wed parents, uh, modification of, of, of a prior order or modification of a foreign decree when there already was an order regarding custody that took place, and then complaint for dependency for cases where uh, the child's over the age of 18, but under the age of 21, or there's deceased parents. All right. Thanks, Tim. So now we're going to dive into each of those sort of vehicles into probate and family court that Tim just mentioned. And the first one we're going to discuss is one of the most common ones, which is a petition for appointment of a guardian of a minor. And so what is the purpose of a guardianship petition? So it's twofold. And we don't want to minimize the importance of the underlying guardianship petition, um, because a, it's one of the required elements of SIDGE is to get a custodial determination, but it's also very important for children to have a legally recognized caretaker independent of this SIDGE petition. Um, oftentimes they're very, very young and really need a guardian in the United States for things like making medical decisions on their behalf, enrolling them in school, um, things like that. And then, of course, the second purpose is to obtain the special findings for their special immigrant juvenile case. So something to consider about whether guardianship is the most appropriate vehicle into state court is to um, evaluate the guardian and whether guardianship is sort of the most um, appropriate vehicle. So things you're going to want to think about are, is there a parent in the child's life? Typically, guardianship cases are most appropriate when neither when the child is not living with either parent um, or the parents are not involved in their life. This is not necessarily the case. There could be instances where, for whatever reason, um, it's in the child's best interest to be with an aunt, a cousin, older sibling, any you know any suitable person that could be the guardian, even if they do have a parent here in the United States. Um, really important to note that the guardian does not have to have legal status themselves in the United States. It can be any adult that is suitable to be their guardian, regardless of their immigration status themselves. Um, you'll want to make sure the guardian understands what it means to be a legal guardian. So oftentimes the guardian themselves, um, you know, is, is young, they, they are also relatively new to the United States in a lot of situations, and it's really important that you make sure they understand that they are going to be legally appointed as, as the child's guardian, and that comes with certain duties and responsibilities. Sometimes the child arrives in the United States with a document called a poder from their home country. Um, it's essentially basically just a document that is from their home country where the parents say, um, you know, I would like this person to take care of my child. Uh, it's really important to, to note that that does not constitute a custodial agreement for SIDGE purposes. You still need to get that custodial determination from the Massachusetts Probate and Family Court. Similarly, the children, when they're released from the Office of Refugee Resettlement, will have a form which designates their sponsor. So in other words, a person that they will be released to. Um, that also does not 
constitute a legal custodial or guardianship arrangement. They still do need that uh, custodial or guardianship um, determination made by the probate and family court. So things to think about of who should be the legal guardian of the child. Um, so you'll want to think about things like who does the child live with, uh, who is best suited or willing to be their caretaker. Um, ideally, they would have no criminal record or at least no criminal record that would make a, a judge question their suitability to be a guardian. Um, they will undergo a carry check before their hearing and um, the court will be aware of any criminal record as well as any DCF involvement. So um, you'll want to evaluate whether this person is suitable to be a guardian based on based on those uh, situations. And again, really important, um, they do not have to have legal immigration status themselves to be appointed the child's guardian. All right, so that's guardianship. We're gonna move on to a one-parent custody filings, which are also quite common for, for kind clients. Um, so <clears throat> if the child is living with one parent, you'll want to do one of the following types of filings, depending on if the child's parents are legally married or not. So for married parents, um, you can file for divorce and as part of the divorce process, incorporate your motion for special findings to incorporate that in, into the custodial um, determination as a result of the divorce proceedings. <clears throat> you can file a complaint for separate support, which would be a situation where the parents are still legally married but living separately um, and one parent is asking for custody, child support, parenting time, things like that. Um, you don't have to ask for separate support. You can ask for solely custody. Um, and then um, if the parents are unmarried, which is more common, um, in our, at least in our cases, you'll want to look to whether the father is on the birth certificate or not. If the father is not listed on the birth certificate, you would need to file a complaint to establish paternity. Um, and then as part of, part of the relief sought, you would incorporate your motion for special findings to incorporate those findings into the paternity and custodial um, determination. Um, the court needs to make an adjudication of paternity before you can get findings. You can't get findings against uh, an unnamed father. So if, if there's no father on the birth certificate or if the incorrect father is listed on the birth certificate, you need an adjudication of paternity in order for the judge to make the findings against that father. Um, also for unwed parents, you can also do a just a simple complaint for custody if the father is listed on the birth certificate with mom as plaintiff and father as defendant. Um, and again, you can still do a complaint for support, visitation rights, uh, things of that nature as well for unmarried parents. All right, so moving on to the other types of filings you can do to get into probate and family court. So um, the complaint for dependency, um, this is, for children who are over 18 and under 21. Um, it's a great statute because it very clearly delineates that the family and probate courts have jurisdiction for special immigrant juvenile cases up until the age of 21. Um, so it also, the 39M complaints also allow for findings against a deceased parent. Um, and it treats death as abandonment as a similar basis under state law. So for example, if you have a child um, who's living with mom and their father is deceased, um, the mom already has custody as operation of law, but you can do a complaint for dependency to seek findings against the dad, even though he's deceased. Um, so it definitely makes things easier for those situations. Um, 
And again, it, it, it also allows for children to get SIDGE findings up until the age of 21, which is, which is great. Um, registration and modification are less common, but they still do come up. So as Tim mentioned, this would be, for example, if there's already an existing order that you want to modify to incorporate special findings into the existing order. Um, it can also be used to register and modify foreign decrees, um, which can be a decree not, not just from a foreign country, but also just another state in the United States. Um, so yeah, less common, but, but registration and modification do come up. Okay, so elements of filing. How do we get these cases into the probate and family court? Uh, what's the process? Uh, these are the most common components that we see um, when we file these cases. Every complaint or every filing begins with a complaint or petition. Uh, and this is essentially what you're asking the court to do. Um, and with each complaint or petition, we also file a proposed order or a proposed decree. Uh, and these proposed orders or decrees and, and I'm sorry, proposed judgments and decrees um, are crucial to submit because you have the opportunity to craft the exact language that you want the judge to sign off on. Uh, so that is really, really important. Uh, we follow that with an affidavit of indigency. I'll try saying that three times fast. Essentially, that's a fee waiver, uh, which covers many of the fees and costs associated with filing these types of cases. It might cover a filing fee or a summons fee. Or even if the if the opposing party resides in the Commonwealth, uh, you you can get the uh, service to process fees covered. Um, next, we have vital records. Uh, vital records were always important in these cases. So birth, marriage, and death records, and the corresponding uh, translations of these records, if they're not in English, um, are also important to submit. And because these records were almost always necessary, uh, it's recommended that you have them translated pretty early on. And, you know, KIND does maintain a database of the co most common uh, template uh, translations uh, for, for our pro bono attorneys. Uh, next, we have motions uh, and proposed orders of those motions, motion to accept a copy of a birth record, uh, motion for alternative service where opposing party can't be located, motion for speedy hearing when an immediate hearing date is necessary. Uh, that's another uh, thing that comes up pretty, pretty frequently. Um, and then affidavit disclosing care and custody. This is where prior custodial actions must be disclosed to the probate and family court. So if something happened in a different state or even in a different country regarding the custody of the child, you have to disclose that on that particular form. And then there's other forms that, that come up. Sometimes it's county specific. Uh, military affidavit has to be submitted. Uh, public assistance affidavit has to be submitted in some counties. Uh, you should always submit an appearance, especially if you have multiple attorneys on a case, because you want um, you want the court to know who all the attorneys are. And sometimes at the bottom of a complaint, there really is only one space for an attorney. So if there's two attorneys on a case, it's good to have two appearances. Uh, so then on the next slide, we can look at the immigration component. So everything I just discussed was was to get the case filed in the probate and family court. And that essentially gets the, the common relief that's requested on the complaint, which is the you know, custody support, uh, parenting time, et cetera. It does not request, or it's, it's not the full request for, for special findings. Uh, while it's written on the complaint or, or the uh, petition for guardianship, you have to actually motion that in in most cases. So we start with a motion for special findings, and that's where you're requesting all the findings necessary to you know, obtain for the child to be able to, to obtain special immigrant juvenile status. But besides the motion, 
we also have an order, um, a corresponding order with that motion. And that order, uh, it's called an order of special findings, you know, that has everything in detail that the judge is signing off on. A uh, child is a resident of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, it's not in the best, it's not, um, reunification with father is not viable due to uh, abuse. Father beat the child on a regular basis with a belt, and then it will cite to a CMR. I mean, it's really detailed, and it's a really important document. And USCIS, when they analyze these cases, they rely primarily on that document. It's probably the most important document in these cases. Um, affidavits of the child uh, or parent or guardian, I mean, that that's all really important. You have to have um, affidavits. This is the primary evidentiary basis that the court relies upon. And then finally, you know, some people submit a legal memorandum. I think those are only really necessary if you have a unique issue of law or it's a new judge that's never seen one of these cases before. But for the most part, that's that's certainly an optional um, optional filing. So the affidavit, as you heard me mention before, it's a crucial document. It's the evidence, right? This is, uh, you know, it's a substitute for testimony. So instead of having a 14-year-old child having to stand up in open court and testify to how, you know, they were mistreated by a parent or beaten by a parent uh, or, or other even worse things, um, the judge has this affidavit that, that they can rely upon and then ask maybe some follow-up questions if necessary. But for the most part, the judge relies primarily on that affidavit. Um, the most time in these cases gets spent on these affidavits. Uh, it takes a long time to sort of build up the client's story and then put it into that paper form to really, you know, have something that the judge can feel confident about signing off on. Um, always use child-friendly interviewing techniques uh, when you're when you're meeting with children and discussing these issues. And we do have a separate training that we conduct on interviewing children and also affidavit drafting. Uh, for these purposes. Um, your interviewing, by the way, should adapt to the communication styles of the child. So, you know, I've had some clients, they're very talkative. As soon as they sit down in, in the chair and you ask them the first question, they're ready to tell you their whole life story in detail. It's like a movie almost. Uh, other children will downplay horrible things that happen to them, things that maybe an objective you know, a person would say, wow, that was that was pretty terrible or that was definitely abuse or, or whatever. Um, that child might not see it that way because of the trauma they went through. And some children are very quiet and it takes a long time to really uh, work with them to develop the story. It takes a lot of time to, to develop that relationship. Uh, but that affidavit, because it's so necessary, you have to work with children even who are, who are uh, not, not as uh, forthcoming with their, their life stories. Um, you know, it is important to sort of build that rapport. Um, you want to keep affidavits in the child's voice at all times. So no legalese or legal conclusions in the affidavit. The cliche is sort of stick to the facts, let the facts lead to the conclusions versus you never want to say something like, um, you know, I was neglected by my father because he did not provide food or support for me. I said that robotically because that's how it comes off. And that's how it's going to come off to a judge. Uh, you want the facts to sort of lead to those types of conclusions. You don't want to use a legal conclusion like neglect in an affidavit. You also want to avoid speculation. You know, everything in the affidavit should be based or must be based on the personal knowledge of the affiant. So this, these are the things that the child observed, the things that the child uh, experienced, right? That's what the affidavit should be about. 
And again, you're utilizing the child's voice. If the child says something that's very unique and it's translated to you and you find that to be unique, uh, you know, you can put that in the affidavit. Uh, there's been many times where a child's told me a phrase that I just, it stuck with me. And I made sure I put that on that affidavit because it gives, it shows that it's an authentic document, right? Um, the framework of the affidavit should at all times address the SIGE elements. It should be addressing custody or dependency, uh, the viability determination or non-viability determination. So abuse, abandonment, neglect by one or both parents, and then the best interest of the child. It, that's what the affidavit's about. It shouldn't be anything really outside of that. Uh, you want to avoid any unnecessary facts that might you know, be detrimental or damaging to your client, and they don't pertain to the elements. Um, you always want to keep in mind that direct questioning uh, is not always as effective as open-ended questioning. So, for example, you might ask the client um, or the child, you know, did your parents abuse you? And the child might say no. Uh, but if you ask what happened when you misbehaved, the child might give you a very different answer, such as, uh, you know, uh, I was hit with a belt when they were mad at me. Every time I didn't work, they would throw water on me, cold water, uh, et cetera. So, you know, always think about being creative with your questioning to be able to elicit the best information for these documents. Um, you also have to keep in mind that for many children, violence is normalized. This means that something that might appear to be shocking to you, something that might appear to be unusual to you, might be very usual to that child because that was their lived experience. Um, it's also important to note that these affidavits are public record, meaning anybody can go to the courthouse and they can look up that child's case and open up the file and, and read the affidavit. Uh, the same goes for mass courts. If anybody has access to mass courts, they can look at these affidavits or other court filings. So my recommendation is if there's something that is sensitive that you wanna keep from being in the public record, uh, you should always consider empowerment, empowerment's done by motion uh, because you wanna be mindful of the impact that that information could have should it be available uh, to, to the public at large. Um, you also want to be, you know, understanding of what the country conditions are in that child's, you know, where they're from. Uh, we do have country conditions trainings that we conduct, uh, and uh, those country conditions trainings will tie, uh, tie to your questioning, and the questioning will tie to the best interest of the child element. So, um, you know, if there's a, a high, uh, high volume of gang violence in a particular country, and you understand that, then you can you'll be better informed to be able to you know ask those types of questions to the child. Did you see gangs? What kind of symbols did you see? What did they wear? Do they have tattoos, etc. Um, if the child's very young, then the primary affidavit should probably be from a parent or guardian. Uh, so I don't think there's a lot of use in an affidavit from a nine-year-old. So uh, I certainly, in those situations, uh, I would talk to a parent who has the same or, or similar knowledge to the facts and circumstances in the child's case, uh, or guardian might know about uh, the particular details in a, in a child's situation. Um, but then you still want to be mindful as to what is stated therein, because you don't really want to put the affiant in harm's way, such as you know making a statement as to who paid for the child to come to the United States. Uh, the bottom line is affidavits, they should not be, they should be unique and they should not be boilerplate. There should be no cutting and pasting from one affidavit to another where you're substituting, you know, Honduras for Guatemala or whatever. Just because they sound similar and the children have similar circumstances on paper, it does not mean that they're the same, right? 
So uh, my view is, you know, a short authentic affidavit, if that's all you can come up with, is better than a long cookie cutter affidavit. So best interest of the child, to me, this is often a forgotten element by practitioners. It seems like you know, there's a lot of focus put on the custodial side. There's a lot of focus put on uh, the abuse, abandonment, neglect, and the reunification element. But then best interest sort of falls by the wayside. And I think this is such a crucial piece that needs to be addressed. Um, you have to show that it's not in the child's best interest to return to his or her native country. And while there's no true state statutory definition of what best interests actually are, it's generally the facts that relate to the child's health, safety, welfare, and well-being. So this could be, you know, the child is residing with a custodial parent or guardian, and they would be separated from that person. That's important to note. Not in the child's best interest to return back to Guatemala because child will be separated from his mother. Um, child is receiving adequate medical and dental care, maybe mental health care. And that care would not be uh, would not be obtainable in native country. Uh, child is away from the abusive family member, and they would be essentially reunited with the abusive family member should they return back to native country. A child is safe from gang violence in native country that they were being subjected to, and uh, being here in Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, is not subjected to such such violence. Um, I always like to contrast why it's not in the child's best interest to return to the native country with why it is in the child's best interest to stay in the United States. I think that really provides uh, uh, some, some value when, when you're dealing with this particular element. I also say considering, you know, to add, um, or you might want to consider adding the child's goals to the affidavit. So uh, this would be, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to be a firefighter. Um, or I want to go to college and I want to be a doctor. And that that sort of ties right into best interest as well. So I think that's important to put in. All right. Thanks, Tim. So <clears throat> once you've compiled all of your probate and family court forms and finished your the immigration components of your filing, um, you're ready to go filing court. So um, you can file by mail in person or online for certain types of filings. I am a fan of filing in person for a few reasons. Um, filing in person allows you to talk to the clerk when you file. So if you have a question, you can ask them live. Uh, they can also, depending on how busy they are, actually review it for you and let you know if there's anything deficient in your filing so that you can just take it back, fix it and file it again rather than mailing back and forth and waiting for a rejection and then mailing again. It's just a lot simpler, in my opinion, to file in person. Um, another benefit to filing in person is also depending on how busy they are, they may be able to approve your indigency determination that same day. Um, they also may be able to actually get your summons for you that day and you can just walk out of court with the summons, which saves a lot of time as well. Um, if you, um, so uh, there's also, you can also track your case on um, mass courts. So if you, um, if you do have to file by mail, um, you can just check mass courts to see once it's been docketed. Um, another great thing that um, now exists um, 
is the virtual registries, which you can just log on and talk with the clerk virtually over Zoom um, to discuss any sort of complications with your case, any questions you have about your case, um, which saves you, you know, having to go there in person to talk to them. Um, and yeah, so virtual registries are, are great and you can find more information about those on the link in this slide. So service of process. Um, so that's, of course, uh, very important as it is in every case. The interested parties need to be notified that um, the filing has been made against them. Um, so service is, you can think of it like a spectrum. So the best possible service would be um, if you're able to, if you know where the defendant's location and you're able to serve them by a constable or sheriff. Um, and and you know you can just get them to accept service and then uh, great very simple um, and that's you know ideal but not very you know not often possible um, if you don't know the location of the defendant, you'll have to do a motion for alternative service uh, and ask the court to issue a citation to allow you to publish service in a newspaper. Um, so if you do need to file a motion for alternative service, uh, you'll need to show do, what due diligence you tried in order to locate the defendant. Um, for example, social media searches, contacting family members, Google searches, um, things like that. Um, but generally, if you can show that the defendant's whereabouts are unknown, um, the judge will typically allow service by publication pretty routinely. Um, you won't have to have a separate hearing on the motion for alternative service generally, um, and you'll just get the decision in the mail along with the citation and an order for publication, as well as mailing to their last known address, if there is a last known address. Um, it is important to have the con a conversation about service early with your client to determine the best way to serve. Um, so, you know, if you know right off the bat that they have no idea where the defendant lives, you can plan ahead. Okay, I'm going to need to file a motion for alternative service uh, with my initial filing. Um, However you do end up serving, of course, obtain proof of service. Uh, so this would either be a signed and notarized acceptance of service or proof that it was published in the newspaper. So like a physical you know, tear, tear sheet from the newspaper to show that it was published. Um, sometimes you may need a temporary order in the meantime. For example, if the child has an urgent medical procedure coming up and needs a temporary guardianship order in the meantime, um, in those cases, sometimes you, you may not need to effectuate full service. Um, it's rare, but you know, these emergency situations can come up. Um, so I'd like to note that advanced consent, so in other words, getting consent before you file is available um, for guardianship cases. And I'm gonna talk about that on the next slide as well. So, for guardianship cases, you can potentially get consent ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, if you get the, the consent form signed and signed and notarized in advance, you file it with your initial filing and you don't need to serve after the fact. Um, of course, that's not always possible. You need to know who the parents are to, in order to consent. Um, you need, and you need to know um, where they're located so that you can get them, you know, mail it to them to, to sign. And um, of course, they have to be willing to consent. So if they're not willing to consent, you do have to serve after the fact. But in a lot of situations, the parents really are willing to consent. Um, you know, they, they 
typically are okay with whoever you're proposing the guardian to be their child's guardian, but of course not, that's not the case all the time, but um, it does make things a lot easier if you can get consent beforehand. So um, again, this is what, an important to have the conversation with your client early, because if you know that you can get consent, um, you can do it at you know initial stage of the case. So the hearing itself, um, so, you know, after you filed your petition or complaint, after the defendant has been served um, and you get a hearing notice um, and the hearing notice, I mean, the hearing itself um, is generally pretty straightforward. That being said, you, of course, still want to prep your client and their parent or guardian, um, you know, if, if particularly if the child is like a, like you know, 15, 16, 17, um, they, they should be present at the hearing, so they should be prepared as well. Um, when you get there, you'll check in with the clerk in the courtroom. They'll go through the file, make sure that everything that's needed is there. Um, you're going to want to make sure there's an interpreter present if the, if the parties need an interpreter, which for special immigrant juvenile cases, most often they, they will need an interpreter. Um, you should request an interpreter in advance. Um, some, some counties have their own separate form to request an interpreter. Some counties, you just have to make the request in writing in the cover letter of your filing. That being said, you should definitely, definitely still follow up with the court a couple of days before the hearing to remind them that you need an interpreter. Um, and yeah, I've had many situations where despite making the request, there isn't one present. So definitely best practice to remind them. Um, and then at the hearing itself, when you're checking in, remind them again, um, you know, that you need an interpreter for your hearing so they don't call your case before the interpreter gets there. Um, in certain cases, uh, you will need to go to probation for a background check, um, particularly for guardianship cases. They're going to do a carry check um, to see if there's any criminal record or DCF record for the proposed guardian. Um, Sometimes for complaints for de dependency cases where the child is over 18, they do also do a background check on the child themselves. Um, and so, you know, once once the probation check clears, um, you go back to the courtroom and, and wait for your case to be called. So the presentation of the case itself. So once your case is called, um, you really should, you know, it should be relatively quick presentation. Um, they don't want you to be talking on and on about the case. So give a short summary of why you're in court and what you're asking the judge to do. So for example, um, Your Honor, we heard today on a petition for guardianship of a minor. We are requesting the court to appoint uh, the child's older sister as his legal guardian. And, you know, we're also here on a motion for special findings. And then, you know, summarize, you know, why, why, the motion for special findings warrants uh, warrants being granted. So you'll summarize the components of the uh, abuse, abandonment, or neglect, as well as best interests of the child. Um, you'll review service and proof of service, and then um, usually end with like a positive about the child's life. The judges like to hear that. You know, the child's doing well in school. Um, you know, they're, they're really thriving here in the United States. And then that's it. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't really have to do too much talking. Um, the client themselves should almost never have to do any talking. Um, 
the only thing that will typically the child will need to say is often the judge will ask the child they'll say i have in my i have in the file an affidavit that you signed um do you remember signing it are you aware of its contents um you know did did, did someone read it to you in your native language before you signed it um you know they 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 say yes to all of those questions and then that's really all they have to say um and just a quick note on contested hearings. So this would be a situation where, for example, the defendant parent um, files their own response of pleading to your to your case contesting it, or even if they don't do that, they show up in court and want to contest it. So very, very, very rarely does this happen in special immigrant juvenile cases. Um, but just to just to note that it could happen. Um, and yeah, so assuming everything goes well, um, the judge often can get, will sign the, the, the custodial order, guardianship order, as well as your proposed order of special findings right there. Um, you know, and then you can wait for the clerk. Sometimes the, the clerk, depending on how busy the court is, can give you the certified copies of your orders and you are good to go. All right. Question time. I don't see anything in the Q&A, but please feel free to um, type any questions in the chat or the Q&A or take yourself you know, off mute and ask any questions. All right, if if no questions, um, here is Tim's and my contact information. If you do have any questions either about SIG or about KIND and the work that we do, um, or if, if even better, you're interested in volunteering to take a case, please let us know. We have many, many cases available at the moment. Um, so I do, oh, I do see Q&A now. Let's see. All right, we have to start a complaint in probate court, typically the child must have residency. How do you deal with that? Do you mean like, like, le like legal residency, like a like what do you, like a green card or just like live in the live in Massachusetts? Unless you're unless she's referring to um, like child must be a resident of Massachusetts for six months. Okay, so six months unless there's emergency jurisdiction. Does that answer your question? And the immigration status, by the way, does not, um, you know, affect uh, the the ability for a child to be a Massachusetts resident. So, generally, six months, and then again, if there's emergency jurisdiction. And then, can you elaborate more on the father not being listed on the birth record? Um, so, this would be a case where you, the child doesn't have a father on the birth record. And, you know, let's say the child's living with his mother or her mother, 
and uh, you have to have we have to have bindings against one or both parents. So if the child's living with you know their mother, then the only parent that they can get bindings against would be the father. And if there's no father on the birth record, then you have to go through a process to, to get a determination of who the father is. And typically that's a complaint for paternity under Massachusetts General Laws 209C. Um, there's also a method where you can get a, 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 a quasi paternity determination through 39M, but I don't know if that's um, getting too deep into the weeds. All right, we have, uh, I'm wondering where one can file a custody complaint when mom moves to a shelter in a different county than where they were previously living. Dad was in Massachusetts and now detained. So I think it depends on where, if the mom, well, here's the thing, right? If mom is in a shelter and it's a domestic violence shelter, then there's certain safety considerations that you want to approach because let's say, uh, there was fathers detained because of some sort of domestic violence incident that happened in Middlesex County. And now the father resides in, um, in, uh, I'm sorry, now the mother resides with the child in Bristol County. If, you know, that child, if, if they file something that the father's going to know that, that, that they're now living in Bristol County. So, um, if that's not the situation, you know, it really depends on where the child is. So that's, it'd be filed if, if, if the, mother's in a shelter with the child in Bristol County, then that's where the complaint would be filed. All right, and then we have um, parents, married or unmarried status relates to marriages in the US only, or also in the father's country of origin as well. Um, so any, any legal marriage in any jurisdiction or, or country. Yeah, and, and sometimes we'll have a case where parents are married in Brazil, and now we have to file for divorce in, you know, Massachusetts, maybe in Bristol County, and uh, that marriage is has the same full force and effect as a marriage that took place in in Massachusetts. So we're seeking to dissolve that marriage.